We'll be reading verses 12 to 19. And as you're turning there, I'd like to ask you a question. If you were to die and you were to stand before the judgment seat of God, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, Scripture tells us. And God were to say to you, why should I allow you into my presence? What would your answer be? What would you say? I'm taking it for granted that you would want to be in the presence of the Lord. Any of you know that old Eric Clapton, I've finally found what it is to live in the presence of the Lord. There's a hunger and a thirst in our hearts to be united with our maker and our creator, God. If you desire that, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my presence, the presence of the Lord, what would you answer? How would you answer? Now let's read together uh, the letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore the word of the Lord, which is eternally true, beginning with verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you say thanks be to God. Personally, I'm very happy that the book of Romans was inspired and put in the Bible because I want there to be one book of the Bible that I find simple. We've been reading Luther's commentary on Galatians, and several times in our reading in the pastor's college in the last two weeks, Luther has made a comment something like, here the Holy Spirit does not observe the proper rules of grammar. (laughs) Another place he says, here the Holy Spirit does not observe the proper rules of rhetoric. And then he says, But it's really no fault in the Holy Spirit because the Apostle Paul is zealous. And in the interest of zeal, he couldn't bother with grammar and rhetoric. 
And that's a very, very good word to us in a day when preachers want to be very, very polished. I asked in the first service how many of you have sat through a sermon where it was memorized. How many of you here? Memorize sermons. Why does a pastor memorize a sermon? pastor memorizes a sermon so that he doesn't say anything that violates the rules of grammar or rhetoric. But then if you memorize your sermons and they're perfect, you don't have zeal for anything, do you? And if the Apostle Paul had written the book of Romans in such a way as to properly observe the rules of grammar and rhetoric... How much of it would be left? Did you notice there's an M dash in the text? Look at the M dash. Now, normally an M dash has what? Another M dash. Doesn't always have to, but normally it does. So where does the other M dash come in this text? You know, in other words, this is an emphatic parenthetical statement. That's why you use an M dash and not a comma and not even a semicolon or a colon. An M dash says, now, listen here. Okay, now we're back. You know. He came into my home and made a lunge for my wife. He was a murderer, and so I shot him. (laughs) So where's the other M dash? Because all sin, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death. Oh, wait, maybe before nevertheless, but you're not really sure, are you? And this is Paul. Paul will have parenthetical statements that go on for five pages. He doesn't observe the rules of grammar and rhetoric. Why? Because he's zealous. Now, if he's zealous, and that's why he's breaking rules in the text, what's he zealous for? Well, I want you to know today that the Apostle Paul here is zealous for the freedom of the soul that is in Jesus Christ. The freedom of the soul that is in Jesus Christ. And so how does the Apostle Paul break the Christian free in this text? Well, the way the Apostle Paul breaks the Christian free is by putting you in bondage. And that bondage is called the federal headship of Adam, or original sin, or the imputation of Adam's sin. Theological statements, big words. And you have to see how he's working through this text in such a way as to put you into bondage. Because if you don't see how you're in bondage, then you'll never see where your liberty is. Because if you're not in bondage, then everything depends on you. Okay, now, let me ask, some of you were raised in a Roman Catholic home, and some of you have Roman Catholic relatives and friends. If you ask a Roman Catholic whether they're a Christian, what do they answer? They always answer some variation on the theme of, well, I'm a practicing Christian? No. 
I'm a practicing Catholic. Why do they answer that? Because Roman Catholics are taught never to be proud about their spiritual condition, right? They'll never tell you they're a Christian because they are practicing. And they hope someday, as they practice, they will become worthy of the presence of the Lord. And this is why in the Roman Catholic doctrine, when you die, you go into purgatory. Because most people, when they get done with life, haven't practiced well enough. Okay? And so they get put in purgatory where they practice some more until such time as they're infused, all right, with enough righteousness that they merit the presence of the Lord. All right? And this is seen everywhere in the Roman Catholic Church. You don't have to look hard to see it. Ask them, are you a Christian? In other words, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And they'll say, well, I'm practicing. And what that means is present participle, working, practicing, working. Those of you that play an instrument, you know what practicing is. Some of you do. All right. And some of you are on your way to becoming a uh, music education major. You can tell I've been in Bloomington for a while. (laughs) And the rest of you all look down on them, right? All right. And so it's very easy to see how the system works because anywhere you go outside of the North American Roman Catholic Church, you will see real Roman Catholicism. You'll never see it in America. Well, you can see it some places where there's a very strong Irish or Italian community, then you can almost see Roman Catholicism as it's been all through history and is everywhere else in the world. And what does that look like? Well, when I was in seminary in Boston, where there's a very strong ethnic community that's Roman Catholic, I was hired one time to do uh, disaster restoration work for service master. And it was downtown in Boston. It was a Roman Catholic church. I went into church, and I spent a horrible day right, right near the common cleaning soot off of ceilings and walls. The difference between when we started and when we stopped was unbelievable. The walls were black. Why were they black? They were black from what? Little votives that people had lit. Why do they light the candles? Because they're a practicing Catholic. Many of those candles are lit for what? Their intentions for dead relatives. That little candle is a way that you can help one of your dead relatives to get out of purgatory more quickly. You understand this? If you go down to La Ciudad de Mexico and you go to the cathedral and you look at the stairs in front of it, what will you see on the stairs? You will see old women crawling up the stairs on their knees. What are they doing? They are a practicing Catholic. In other words, candles, paying for masses to be said, crawling up the steps of cathedrals, making pilgrimages to Lourdes and to Medjugorje. All these things, going to mass every day, getting a plenary indulgence, 
confession, although confession post-Vatican II is nothing. That's one of the benefits of Vatican II. One of the many benefits. Okay? And it has all of the uh, Latin Mass people up in arms. All of this stuff is practicing. And what's it practicing? It's practicing holiness so that you will what? So that you will merit the presence of the Lord. How does money change hands in the Roman Catholic Church? It changes hands in such a way as to transfer the church's treasury of merit, the works of supererogation, okay, into an individual believer, and the church declares that God has given it that power. And that's true today. Okay? practicing Catholic. Now, what's true when you do all those things? Well, what's true is that you believe that you can merit the presence of the Lord. You can merit the presence of the Lord. It may take you until after you die and have been in purgatory for a long time, but eventually you will merit, you will have practiced your Catholicism enough that you will merit the presence of the Lord. Now, here's a question I want to ask each of you. And if you're Roman Catholic... Don't resent me, but answer the question. How did it go this last week on this merit thing? How did it go? Men, how were your eyes? Pure? Made a covenant with your eyes that you would not look on a woman with lust in your eyes. How did it go? I'm not asking you to tell your wife. Just tell me. How did it go? And women. Caddy. How'd that go this last week? Did you fantasize about intimacy with any particular man this last week? How did it go? Mothers, young mothers, were you patient with your children? If your children were to give you a report card for this past week, how did it go? And you say, well, everything went pretty Poorly. And I say, well, you better get to work. And you say, what? What do you say? So how did it go this morning? Let's forget the week. Every day is a new beginning. How did it go this morning? How did it go this morning, Adrian? Huh? I mean, pure? Hmm, boy. We'll have to have you talk to Chris Connell. He'll get you straightened. How about you, Wayne? Lizzie, how was this morning? So this morning wasn't good, right? Right? So how about right now? Going. Do you merit the presence of the Lord? So, like, how about if you work on it for a while? How long do you want? Dylan was once interviewed by a British dude. I was listening to the radio interview. And the British dude was really enamored with the concept of reincarnation. And so he kept pushing Dylan to say that he thought maybe reincarnation was possible. 
and Dylan was being his usual obstreperous self. And finally, Dylan had had Bob Dylan. He'd had enough with this student. He said to him, look, how many times do you need to go through it before you get it right, huh? So if reincarnation is how you merit the presence of the Lord, how many times do you have to be reincarnated? Let's say you're one of the ones here that's like really evolved. You're a young mother. If God gives you ten times to be married and have little children, do you think on the tenth you can finally get it right? How about the 20th? How about if you come back as a man? Would that help? Through one man, sin entered into the world. And so death spread to all men because all sin. This whole text teaches you that when Adam fell, you fell. And that because of Adam's sin, okay. Is Andrew Henry here? Just sing that first one thing. Just sing it. Just stand up and sing it. Stone cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was that you that sang it? Okay, come on, Nick. Stone cold dead when I stepped out of the womb. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you are a a nanosecond old in your mother's womb, that you're corrupt and dead in your trespasses and sins because of Adam's sin? Do you believe that? That's what's known as original sin. That's what's known as the imputation of Adam's sin. And let me tell you, there is, a, there is a tremendous attack on that doctrine today. And the attack I see everywhere because I've tuned myself to see it. Many of you have tuned yourself not to see it. One of the attacks on it is gender-neutered Bible translations. And you say, oh, please, everything's sex here. And I go, yeah, 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 everything's sex here. And, you know, the university, nothing sex, right? (laughs) All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word Adam is used to refer to the race. Adam, 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 Adam. For you as a woman, God names you Adam. In the New Testament, in the epistles, you are called brother. When God talks about his adoption of you through the blood of Christ, he says you become an adopted son as a woman, son. And so the feminists say, to hell with it. I'm taking it all out because it offends me. I'm offended. I am bothered. Okay? And so they take it all out. And they say, we're not going to be Adam. We're not going to be man. It's going to be human. And I go, na 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 gotcha. Human. And they say, well, every revolution takes a little while. 
They have to be transitional steps, you know, you know, punctuated evolution. <laughs> and so what they're doing is they're trying to hide the federal headship of Adam because they don't like it. No woman should have to answer for a man's sin because men are corrupt. To be a man is to be corrupt. To be corrupt is to be a man. And so I will not be called Adam. I will not be called man. I will not be called brother. And I will not be called son. I am woman. Hear me roar. And numbers too big to ignore. And when we get the power of the university on our side, numbers big, university on our side, And you say, well, what does that have to do with the federal headship of Adam? And I say, hey, 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 here's an idea. Eve sinned first, but Adam, Adam, one man, one, 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 not two, not Adam and Eve. Who sinned first, Eve? Who sinned first? Eve, one man. Every time Scripture calls you man, what is it doing? It is hammering home the truth that in Adam, you are dead. And you say, well, I don't want to be called Adam. And I say, fine, give that one up. I don't want to be called son. Fine, give that one up. I don't want to be called brother. Fine, give that one up. And by the time you've given that up, what you've given up is the federal headship of Adam. And you say, well, that's a nasty doctrine anyhow. I don't mind giving that up. I say, fine, then you may not have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You may not have it. Because Jesus Christ is given for those who are sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. And you say, well, I'm not a man. And I say to you, fine, then God isn't your father. And you say, well, I don't want a father anyhow. I want a mother. I want a creator. I want a sustainer. And I say, fine. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives evidence that we are adopted sons of God by crying out from our heart, Abba, Father! And you won't have the language, but you'll take the doctrine. How does this work? How does it work? It's a great shell game. Words don't matter, but boy, they hammer those words in you at the university. Man, they hammer those words in you. And what you're to know is you may not use the word man for the race. Words don't matter, but you won't say man for the race. You won't use Adam for the race. You won't call people brothers. You won't call them sons. And you won't call God father. Just as through two individuals, Adam and Eve, sin entered the race. Does that work? It doesn't, does it? It doesn't, does it? It doesn't work. Am I observing the rules of rhetoric? Did I memorize this speech? So feminism is trying to rob you of the federal headship of Adam and of original sin by having you not quite completely identify with Adam. And that's good, really, because we're all individualists, because our culture is individualistic, right? Sean Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Bruce Willis, we're individualists. And every man wants to be an individualist, right? And it 
is really perverse if you think about it, that through a man's sin that we never met, that we would be condemned in debt in our trespasses and sins. That's a perverse doctrine. I mean, it really is perverse, right? It's not just. You've heard of Blaise Pascal, right? French mathematician. Centuries ago, one of the most brilliant men the world has ever known. And here's what he says about the doctrine. He says, for it is beyond doubt that there is nothing which more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, seem incapable of participation in it. This transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it also seems very unjust. For what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice? (laughs) That's a tell. (laughs) You know where he's headed. Apparently doesn't have a lot of respect for our sense of justice. He says, for what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice than to damn eternally an infant incapable of will? For a sin wherein he seems to have so little a share that it was committed 6,000 years before he was in existence. Certainly, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. Is everybody there? You, You with? Blaze? Everybody with him, right? And then he says this, And yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. How did it go last week? How did it go? Was it good? Did you live up to your good intentions? Do you like what you see in your heart? I say to people, you know, If Hallmark were to send you a card with your heart in it, would you want to get that card? No. No. You see, without the doctrine of original sin, you don't know who you are. And you don't know why you are that way. But once you see one man, sin and death, spread to all of us until you understand that you will never know Jesus Christ and you'll never despair of yourself you'll never despair of yourself everybody wants to to take the shortcut you know and I I have to tell you until I got old every time I went backpacking or hiking I'd always try to take the shortcut I can remember one time out in the Canadian Rockies Just south of Jasper, I was with five women, beautiful women, me, alone. My wife was one of them, and it was her sister's. (laughs) And we had a 17-mile hike that day at the beginning of the trip with the backpacks filled. And by the end of the day, near the end, I was desperate to short-circuit the path. And so there was a ridge. And I saw where the trailhead came out on that ridge, down a valley, and then up the ridge. So I took off across the valley to go up the ridge. 
I was going to take a shortcut, and I was going to, like, be so much ahead of the people that took the path. And that's the way we are with God's truth. We always want to take the shortcut. We don't want to learn about the depravity of Adam and the depravity of our own hearts. And then we want to love Jesus. Do you understand this? How do you love Jesus if you don't know that in Adam you died? How do you love him if you don't know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? How do you love Jesus if you don't know that you were dead in your trespasses and sins when he died for you? And so the Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine of congruent merit. Congruent merit. Whereby the act of the will is seen by God and responded to by him in such a way as to build and fan into flame this little will that is good in you. And so again, how did it go this last week? That, that will of yours that's good. It was real powerful, wasn't it? It produced righteousness, didn't it? Congruent merit is a lie from hell. There is no congruent merit in us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. That's what it says. One man sin entered the world, death through sin, death spread to all men. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. And then it goes on and it says, even Adam to Moses, death reigned too. Even when the law didn't exist, death. And today, it's the same thing. The feminists say, change the language. And they attack the doctrine of you being dead in your trespasses and sins because of Adam. So who else attacks it? The Christian church, the Campbellites attack it. All of a sudden, we're like, why? Because we're in southern Wisconsin, or Indiana. I used to be Wisconsin. And in southern Indiana, the Campbellite tradition is very strong. All the Christian churches are Campbellite. Campbell was a Presbyterian minister that went heretical. He went off the reservation. A few years ago, I was on the board of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood with a man named Jack Cottrell. And I'd heard a lot of things about what Christian church people believe, but you could never get a straight line on it. You know, some people would say one thing and some people would say to the other. And I knew that Jack was the top dog of the Christian church denomination. And I know it's not a denomination. And so I said to Jack, Jack, do Christian church people, do you believe in baptismal regeneration? And Jack said, yes. And I said, I don't get it. If baptism saves you, then what about all the people that have been baptized who obviously have no fruit? There's no indication that they are true believers in Jesus Christ. And he said, well, he said, you can lose your salvation. And so the Christian church believes that baptism saves you. This is their top theologian. That's a direct quote. But it also teaches that you can lose your salvation. 
Now, again, let me ask you this question. How did it go last week? Did you lose it last week? Or did you hold on to it last week? You know what happens in churches like that? Everybody bleaches their hair blonde and drives SUVs. Or now Priuses. And you say, what on earth? I have a Prius. What does that have to do with anything? I bleach my hair. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm not saying everybody that bleaches their hair blonde is a Campbellite. But here's, here's the point. Churches like that have no ability to deal with real sinners in the church. None. They can't handle it. Because then it's like I lost my salvation last month, but this month I'm back on the wagon. Or I lost my salvation last week, but today I'm in church. Or five minutes ago on the way to church, the way I dealt with my wife, I lost my salvation, but I had the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon. I'm doing okay now. Well, when Tim Bailey was talking about the Roman Catholics, I lost my salvation. (laughs) But now he's talking about the candlelights and I'm saved again. What hope is that? Tell me something. How is the Roman Catholic different than the, the Christian church denomination person? There's no difference. You're saved by your works. If you can lose your salvation, your salvation depends on your works. Starting with the work of baptism. Come on, guys. This is not biblical Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. And do you know that they also deny the doctrine of original sin? Here's Jack again. Okay? Jack Cottrell, professor of theology at Cincinnati Christian University, used to be called Cincinnati Bible College, says, No one is born guilty, and until they have reached the age of accountability and personally sinned, they're covered by the blood of Christ and will not be sent to hell upon death. No one is born guilty. No one is born guilty. So in other words, there comes a time when you, because of your sin, become guilty, right? And then you believe in Jesus Christ and you get baptized and you're saved, right? But you can lose your salvation. And so what you have to do is you have to work hard so you don't lose. You're a practicing Christian. And when do we know the gig is up? When do we know that you've merited the presence of the Lord as a Christian? When? When do we know it? Well, you have two options. You can either be a blood caked on the walls incommoding the passers-by. You know, every Sunday you go forward to be baptized again or to be prayed over. You cry. You're like up, down, up, down, up down, up, down, or you get a Prius and you bleach your hair blonde. I tell people that I can't stand Spirit 95. And I'm a pastor. That's awful. Because it's a work done for Christ. 
You know, I can't stand it because every song ends with a crescendo. You know, the brass is blaring, the tenor is going like counter tenor on us. The soprano's up in La La Land, and it's like heaven and grace. Why? Because if you can lose your salvation, then you better show that you're clean. No blood caked on the walls incommoding the passers-by. No tears. No repentance. Because who could live with that pressure? You go down to the Go down to the church, start lighting votives. Start crawling up the steps of the church on their knees. But Protestants don't do that, do they? And so what the Christian church is, is evangelical Roman Catholicism. It's sacramentalism without any of the gauche, embarrassing parts. Do you understand this? And we're all thrown back on ourselves and our own merit and our own works. And day by day, you better take your pulse because it's all up to you. And they say, oh, no, 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 it's Jesus Christ. And I say, prove it. Is it the merit of Christ that saves me? Oh, yes, it's only the merit of Jesus Christ. And I say, well, then why do you have to be baptized to be saved? And they say what? I've heard it. They say, well, if Jesus commanded it, shouldn't we do it? And you know what that is? That's begging the question. (laughs) It's a rhetorical ploy. It's to get your mind off the fact that they believe that it saves you. Remember, Jack Cottrell is a man. He answers honestly. He's their top theologian. He says, yes, we believe in baptismal regeneration. What that means is baptism saves you. And they say, well, if Jesus commands it, don't you want to be obedient? say, wait, 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 wait. Does it save you? Well, wouldn't you want to do what Jesus tells you to do? You know, hey, 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 yeah, yeah, I'll be obedient. I've been baptized. Does baptism save you? Well, wouldn't you want to do what Jesus tells you to do? And you go, dude, if the 1040 says adjusted gross income, what do you say? Well, wouldn't you want to put down what's true? No, you have to put a number, number, you know. Dude, does baptism save you? Well, you know, some of our pastors may believe that, but I don't. I say, okay, you don't. So what about Jack Cottrell? Does he believe it? Well, I don't know. I've never met him. I say, well, I have. And he says, baptism saves you. Regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. One man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And you go through this text, and again and again and again, it tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in Adam. This is the teaching of Scripture. And then it says what? 
It's established Adam's federal headship and therefore the hopelessness of us. <laughs> okay? And then it says in verse 6 of chapter 5, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so you go on and it opens this up and it says, For by the transgression of one, verse 17, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So listen, here's the deal. If you believe in the federal headship of Adam, that God could have set up the earth to be an individualistic society, but he set it up corporately and you were in Adam, then you can turn and you can say the week was horrible, the day was horrible, the last five minutes have been horrible. And then you can turn and you can face Jesus Christ. And you can say to him, O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon me. And he says, well, why should I let you into my presence? And you say, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, well, on what principle would the righteousness of Jesus Christ be transferred to you? You're a scumbag. And you would say, yes. In Adam I died, and I am an enemy of the cross. But I have been told that there is one who was sent into the world to save sinners. And I qualify. And I have read that as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so... I know it doesn't sound right, but he is my federal head by faith. And it says to you, oh, no, 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 look at your last five minutes. He's not your federal head. He would have nothing to do with a slime ball like you. And you say, I know, but, but his spirit says that while I was still an enemy, he died for me. Oh, he died for he died for those with congruent merit. No, no, no. I was an enemy. Where's where's the congruent merit an enemy? Oh, but you don't understand. Let 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 me explain to you. You can't just go scot free. And on the cross is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. On the cross is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you say, you know, I know that, but I keep getting confused. 
I'm thankful again. I see it. I see the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ. I see it. I get it again. But the minute I leave here, it's not going well. And I say, then preach the gospel to yourself. And you say, yeah, but it's so hard. I can't get it right. And you're always telling me what to do. You're not helping. And I say, so the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. And you say, well, how am I ever supposed to get it right if you keep telling me what to do? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Away from me, Satan. And I say, hey, I'm just preaching Scripture. And it tells me what to do. And that's to preach Scripture. I'm to be obedient, you're to be obedient. And you go, yeah, there you go, trashing our grace again. I say, no, 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 no. I'm not trashing your grace. I'm seeking to keep it pure. You already have it. In abundance, completely. You are completely free. And now obey. And you say, no, 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 no. There you go, making me practice Christian, practice Roman Catholicism. There you go again, trampling on my grace. And I go, no, I'm not. I am being biblical. And you say, wait, it's either grace or the law. And I say, yes, when it comes to your conscience, but no, when it comes to your flesh. And you say, well, how am I supposed to keep my conscience and my flesh separate? Listen, people, does your flesh really need grace? Mm-mm-mm. Your flesh needs the law. And your conscience needs the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what your conscience needs. And so when Satan accuses you and says you're not worthy of the presence of the Lord, that's your conscience. You say to your conscience, be gone from me, the devil. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am perfect. I am seated in the heavenlies. And I will have nothing to do with your lies, you accuser of the brethren. And then when your flesh says, finally. And it's Friday night. And I'm all right. And your flesh says, Let sin that grace may abound. And you say, get away from me, Satan. I belong to Jesus Christ. And I serve my master because he gave his life for me. And the word of God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the word of God says, thou shalt not envy. And the word of God says, Thou shalt give thyself to the poor. The word of God says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I will not use the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the grace that is proclaimed through him in vain to cover the lusts of my flesh. You see? The law for your flesh, the law for your flesh, and grace for your conscience. Do you see that? You see it? The law for your flesh. You know what I always want? <laughs> I always want grace for my flesh and the law for my conscience. Because I'm 
wicked in my flesh and because I'm proud in my conscience. And so what I want to do is give myself to sin in my flesh and then in my conscience say that I'm the one that did it. And so I always want grace for my flesh and the law for my conscience. I work for a guy, very, very wealthy guy in Massachusetts. Well, I was in seminary. And uh, very wealthy. And one day, to prove he was a very democratic man, even though he and his wife called me boy when I wasn't there, married in my 30s with children, and I was their boy, uh, he came out to help me dig up some grass that had died. And as we dug, we talked. And we talked about very heavy things that day. And we talked about capital punishment. We talked about Democrats and Republicans. He'd run against Teddy Kennedy after Chappaquiddick, and he was very involved in the Republican Party in Massachusetts, which there is one, I want you to know. Um, And then we got into the issue of a child who had been born blind, and he was explaining to me that it would have been best for that child if that child had been aborted before it was born, because it was born blind. It's a life not worth living. And I said to him that I took that personally. Because my brother, who were still alive, one had cystic fibrosis and one had hemophilia. And I said, I don't want you killing my brothers in the womb. And he said, well, Tim, he said, you know, we don't have the money. We can't handle all the problems of the world. That's why we need abortion because of overpopulation. And that's a quote, unquote. We need abortion because of overpopulation. And because a lot of the people that are born have, you know, all kinds of problems. And I said, well, Mr. I'll call him Smith. I said, well, Mr. Smith, I said, that's the difference between me and you. I said, you are not a Christian and I'm a Christian. And he erupted. We had a very good relationship. And he erupted. Why? Because I'd said he wasn't a Christian. He said, Tim, that's not a very nice thing to say to someone that they're not a Christian. And I was a little bit flummoxed. You know, I was thinking, help me here. I mean, is there anything about your life, your wife's life, your children's lives, your grandchildren? Is there anything about anything about you that says Jesus Christ? And I said, well, sir, I mean, show me. Where in your life is... And he said, well, that's not a very nice... He wouldn't engage the issue. That's not a very nice thing to say that you're not a Christian. And then over the course of the next year, as I continued to work for him, sometimes he'd be running down to get in his car to go to work when I'd be showing up down at the gatehouse, right? And as he'd run to his car, he'd say, you know, Tim, that's not a very nice thing to say that a man isn't a Christian. I never said anything. What was I supposed to say? Now, why was that such an insult? It was such an insult because in America today, we have reduced being a Christian to being a gentleman. And as he saw it, he's a gentleman. And therefore, he's a Christian. Right? I mean, certainly he wasn't saying he believed in baptismal regeneration. He thought he was a pretty nice guy. And that is all of America. All of America thinks that to be a Christian is to be a gentleman, a lady, nice, whatever you want to say, to, to maintain some basic standard of human decency, to be somewhat evolved. 
And so you take the feminists attacking it on language, and you take the Christian church and the Roman Catholic church telling you that you need to practice hard, and then you take this man who's just normal American civic religion to be an American and to be a Christian are the same thing as long as you rise to some basic level of being evolved. And what hope is there for us? We have enemies to the left and we have enemies to the right, enemies behind us, enemies above us. We have enemies everywhere and everyone is trying to tell you that you are not depraved. And that if you just try harder, then you'll reach a basic level of being evolved, of being civilly, uh, sort of gentlemanly, kind of Americanly. Or you'll reach some level where maybe not every day for Mass, but every other day for Mass, right? But a a godly grandmother who's doing hundreds of votives. And no one in America has any hope of the presence of the Lord. No one. You say, oh yeah, many many do. Yes, I know. There are many who do. But you understand my saying, none of these people have any hope of heaven. Because all of them are caught up in the conspiracy that we can give grace to the flesh and we can give the law to the conscience. When the truth biblically is the conscience can't handle the law. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can be given to the conscience. Only the blood of Christ. And the truth is that my flesh can't handle grace. I mean, Abram, hmm? yours, you want to give grace to your flesh? Be honest. See, he has a dilemma because he's not married yet. And so he doesn't quite want to let her know what he's really like. (laughs) Do you want grace for your flesh? No, you want the law, don't you? This is the gospel. And if you read Luther's whole commentary on the book of Galatians, the one who started the Reformation, this is what we recovered. This is the teaching of Scripture. Scripture always gives us grace and the righteousness of Christ at the beginning of an epistle of the New Testament. And then it goes, it goes flip on us. And the last part of the epistle is what? The law for our flesh. And we always go, would you get rid of the last half of all these letters? I want to live in grace. For if by the transgression of the one, death reign through the one. Who's the one? Adam. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. It's not what you practice. It's a gift. The gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now, About this time, many of you are thinking, well, being a Christian can't be this difficult. This is too complicated. I can't get this conscience and this flesh straight in my brain, right? That's how you feel right now. 
Because every time your flesh needs the law, you end up giving it grace. And every time your conscience needs grace, you end up giving it the law, right? And so you're fully twisted, but I have it straight. Right? Here's what Martin Luther says. He says, it is hopeless for me. Every single time I need grace for my conscience, I give it law. And every single time I need law for my flesh, I give it grace. I can't keep these things straight. That's what Luther says. And then he says this. He says, praise God that many of you men reading this and hearing it are younger and have not been raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and so you won't have such trouble with this. And I'm sitting there reading it, you know, 500 years later, and I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, didn't seem to be much help to me. The truth is, Satan is a worthy opponent. And he's always going to put the good thing in the place of the bad and the bad thing in the place of the good. That's how he keeps us in bondage. That's what it means when the Bible says that we live under the law of sin and death. And it's referring to Christians. And so if you have trouble with this, you need to have a wife who, when you're under your conscience, your wife does what? Your wife preaches grace to you. And if your wife is simply an accuser of you, at the first sermon, I said, you need to get a new wife. But I'm not going to say that in this service. <laughs> I don't want to even mention that. Do you see why it's so important who you marry? Do you see that? You need a wife who isn't out to make her points, but is out to make God, God's points with you. That's what a helpmate is. You need to marry a husband who's going to preach the law to your flesh or grace to your conscience. Martin Luther married Katie. And one day, Martin Luther came downstairs. Katie was already up. And she found, he found that she was dressed all in black. And Luther said, my dear Katie, who has died? And Katie looked at him and she said, God has died. And he was incensed. He said, how dare you blaspheme? And she said, the way you've been going around depressed, I figured he must have. That's what you need for a wife. What a rebuke. See, Luther had trouble with it too. So don't feel alone. Surround yourself with people that will preach grace to your conscience but who will know when you need the law for your flesh. Right? All right.